Hello, Line Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Line Cook Thoughts Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Today is going to be a solo episode. This is episode 207, and I'm very, very excited to share it with you. Like I said, as I wanted to do more of these solo episodes, I wanted to touch on some current events going on in the food world, food industry. Might not all relate to restaurants, but at least some of them do. The three stories I'm going over today is one, the idea of weight loss drugs affecting the food industry. A couple of different articles I'll be sharing in the description below, but all of them uh, kind of sharing the same message that the idea of drugs like Ozempic, which is not a primarily based weight loss drug, uh, but something that has been uh, shown to help certain people with weight loss and other drugs coming down the pipeline in regards to um, how they will help people reduce their weight. There has been a lot of speculation. There has been a lot of, um, I guess you would say, uh, I guess, bets or guesses from major financial institutions that this will have a major effect on consumer preferences and the overall effect of the food industry and how consumers purchase food, not only where they purchase food, but volume of purchases, which is causing some concern for some major companies. So I will cover that as I do think it's a fascinating topic and something we will cover in this episode. The second story is the idea of street food becoming more and more popular with consumers, especially in the CPG space. I think this is super important as you are a chef, as you are someone in the food industry, knowing what consumers are not only excited about, but what they're becoming more and more, uh, I guess, perceptive to is important. And I thought this was a great story to touch on. So I touch on that. And then lastly, the National Restaurant Association uh, shared per the Bureau of Labor Statistics that restaurants surpassed pre-pandemic employment peak in September. And I wanted to talk about that. And I do raise some questions. Does it feel that way for those operating in the restaurant industry? Would love to hear your thoughts and would love to learn more on the subject. Before we begin the episode, just a friendly reminder that every Monday I put out the Prepless Items newsletter. This is a newsletter that I share every Monday going over some small, uh, I guess, bites, pun intended, of information uh, that would be relative to anyone in the food industry. Uh, different articles, different ideas, uh, gear, or anything that I've found interesting, I share with you in the Prepless Items newsletter. Like I said, it goes out every Monday, so please check it out. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review. It helps me gain traction, lets me know how you're doing um, in regards to enjoying the, rest- or enjoying the restaurant, enjoying the podcast, and lets me get feedback on how to be a better podcaster and host to you all. So please leave a review on Apple or Spotify. With that said, thank you all for listening, and here we go. I wanted to start out the show with a story that I found very fascinating and one that I find interesting in regards to consumer behavior. I am very interested in consumer behavior and what products people buy. And I think anyone in the food industry, I think one of the biggest hacks you could do in the food world is be interested in CPG goods and consumer goods. Uh, a lot of what is trending, a lot of what is going on in the food industry in regards to what consumers like happens on grocery shelves, happens in the products that are offered in grocery stores. And it's a really, really, honestly, insightful way into learning what your customers and prospective customers and just the general population is interested in. You know, going down the freezer aisle, going into the chip aisle and seeing the flavors highlighted, uh, going throughout and seeing all the other different products that are offered. One of my favorite aisles in the grocery store is the jarred, uh, like, you know, jarred sauces, pasta sauces or cooking sauces, 
and seeing what's on offer and seeing what's available and seeing what's being put out to the general population. And I bring all this up to say that I'm very interested in the future of food and the future of where food is going. You know, being 26 in the food industry, there's a hopefully, knock on wood, <laughs> knock on wood, and realistically, uh, there's a lot of time left to see where things go. And one of the biggest impacts that a lot of people are claiming to be coming in the next few years is the idea of uh, prescription drugs and their effect on consumer um, eating. And to start off, this is not a recommendation uh, to take any drug. This is not a, any sort of health advice. We'll talk about some very high-level financial stuff. This is also not investment advice. Getting all that out of the way, informational only, but still wanted to dive into this topic. A little bit out of my territory, but I found it interesting, and I wanted to share it with you, at least the basics of it. I'm going to say, share a link from Axios kind of covering the story, but basically the headline is how weight loss drugs like Ozempic could radically reshape the food business. So Ozempic is a drug uh, known generically as semaglutide, and it's been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, for use in adults with type 2 diabetes. Ozempic works by mimicking, and this is off of health.ucdavis.edu, Ozempic works by mimicking a naturally occurring hormone. As those hormone levels rise, the molecules go to your brain, telling it you're full. It also slows digestion by increasing the time it takes for food to leave the body. This is similar to the effect of bariatric surgery. When using Ozempic to treat diabetes, weight loss is a common side effect. It is designed to be taken long term. And they go into this article, which I will also share this, health.ucdavis.edu article. Um, but basically, they just say that Ozempic is prescribed for people with diabetes, uh, but uh, a smaller dose uh, has uh, been approved for uh, weight loss in some cases, or doctors can recommend it. Um, obviously, there are side effects and there are things that go into it. And I don't really have an opinion on Ozempic itself or kind of its use. I, I don't take it. I know people are taking it. But what I found interesting is what the effect of Ozempic or weight loss drugs could have on the food industry. So uh, Axios is reporting, as Ozempic and similar weight loss drugs become more popular, Americans might start buying less food, particularly high-calorie snacks and fast food. And they're saying this matters because it could radically reshape the food industry, and investors and food industry executives are starting to pay attention. Um, And, you know, very interesting to say the least. I read somewhere that um, I read it in a Wall I believe it was Wall Street Journal. They had mentioned that seven percent of the American population will be on some sort of weight loss or weight management drug in by twenty thirty five, which I found interesting. Um, but what I found really interesting is this idea of a weight loss drug that stimulates or reduces appetite, suppresses appetite in some people, and how that will affect the overall economy of the food industry. So earlier this week, Walmart's U.S. CEO told Bloomberg that customers taking Ozempic buy less food. Um, this, this was done by mining their own pharmacy and grocery data to pinpoint customer buying patterns. Kind of interesting, not really sure. I mean, that's just, you know, looking at people's medical, the, the correlation between medical and food. Interesting. Um, but then Steve Kahilan, CEO of snack maker Kalanova, told CNBC this week that his company, a Kellogg's spinoff that makes Pringles and Cheez-Its, is watching the Ozempic trends. It's too early to forecast if this is going to be a headwind, but it is something they're paying attention to. 
Uh, the firm projects that over the next 10 years, 7% of the U.S. population, which would be 24 million people, could be taking these drugs. And folks on the drugs or on the drug, whatever that drug is, if it's going to be Ozempic or an offshoot of Ozempic, will likely consume 20% fewer calories, they say. In 2035, that would represent 1.3% of overall calories consumed. Analysts also modeled out a bullish scenario where calorie consumption falls by 1.7% and a bearish 1.9%. Again, this is from Axios that I am reading and sharing this information. That being said, increased use of these weight loss drugs could hurt demand for high-calorie, high-fat, and sugary foods at home or at fast food outlets. And they're saying that companies like Pepsi, McDonald's, and whatnot could take a hit um, due to this, due to the overall uh, need for less, um, you know, in the, the the less demand you would have for products like this, and the less demand you would have from many consumers overall. And so, with that being said, there's just a lot of speculation and a lot of wonder of what's going to happen. Um, you know, a lot of people. We're used to in the past diets coming and going, uh, fads coming and going, and people using quick ways to lose weight, falling off of it, and then going back to regular eating habits. Where this is kind of different, though, is Ozempic is something that can be take that can be taken over a long period of time, and churn rate off of a medication is much can be much lower if it's done effectively. Um, you know, is a lot less likely to happen than. Uh, the idea of someone sticking to a diet and, you know, manually doing it themselves. So when you look at it like that, it's pretty interesting. Um, you, you, there's a, I, there's a Yahoo news uh, link that I could share um, that the estimated global market in 2035 for weight loss drugs could be a hundred million dollars. And that some people are estimating Morgan Stanley specifically is estimating that people on the drugs could cut their consumption by as much as 30%. I know we mentioned 20 before, but 30% could also happen. So, all of this to say, beyond, I think it's it's just a new reality. You know, as medicine moves forward, and like I said, this is not a medicinal podcast. This is a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But just the broad idea that, you know, medicine is getting to a point where there is a pill potentially that could help with some weight loss. I know there's side effects. There's They still have to do a lot more studies. It's not, you know, I don't know that it's a foolproof thing right now. But medicine, the way it's going, the way, you know, at least financial analysts are looking at the food industry, they are actually seeing this as a possibility that a weight loss drug of some kind existing within the next decade will have impact on the food world. And so we look at how food trends will go. You look at what people will be consuming. You look at how we are going to be marketing and preparing and sharing food. And it's just a really big deal, I think, going within the next decade. You know, I think there's a, been a, a really aggressive push towards more healthy options, more healthy dining, um, more opportunities for people to get different cuisine types. But what happens when more and more of the population just has a more suppressed appetite? What happens when consumers don't need all the calories or they, they might not, they will not even crave those extra calories that maybe they don't need, but they're still purchasing for because they crave those calories. And so it's very interesting. It's interesting to see the broader picture of things and obviously how this will affect restaurants. Now, obviously when you're looking at a Morgan Stanley or you're looking at Bloomberg reporting or Axios or Yahoo business, they're looking at major companies, right? They're looking at the bottom line for a Frito-Lay or a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, um, they're, they, I, I don't, 
you know, in these articles, I tried to find how that would affect restaurants. And of course, they're looking at the bigger chains. But what would that mean for a smaller, like a small business, a smaller restaurant, uh, you know, a couple location restaurant? And that's what I'm interested to see. And that's what I'm interested in how that will affect overall margins. You know, in a food industry that's already tight, uh, where you're trying to upsell, where you're trying to get people to have higher check averages, where you're trying to make specials, where you're trying to make things more alluring, if more and more of the population has a suppressed appetite and isn't ordering as much. How does that change the price of food? How does that change how you price out dishes? How does that change how you cost dishes? How does it change what you offer and what the expectation of dining is and how long dining courses go? And so all this is just something I thought of that I thought was interesting and I wanted to share with you all. Um, This is going to be something that happens, I would think, much in the future. Obviously, anything could happen quickly. As we've seen by COVID, there's no promise that things won't happen. And not saying that this is related to that, but more so saying that like anything can change at any moment. It seems like and it feels like more and more every day. But this is something that could be big. This is something that could affect not only the food industry and like CPG companies and whatnot, but restaurateurs and what we serve and how we define dining and what we offer and what the expectation of purchasing is from guests who visit the restaurant. So with that being said, I would love to hear your thoughts on this story. I'll share some of the links that I shared in this um, part of the podcast in the description down below. So go check those out and let me know your thoughts. Rolling into consumer goods, I guess this is the episode where we talk more so about uh, CBG and stuff like that. Um, is the idea of the something I've noticed over the last few months, years, is the idea of street food being prevalent in packaged goods. And I actually was in Target uh, earlier this week, uh, this weekend, and I noticed a brand called Somos. I've heard of them. Uh, basically, uh, on their website, and I'll share a link, is Mexican Meals Made Easy. Spend less time cooking and more time enjoying the endless Mexican meals you can make with Somos. And they have a bunch of different little um, items uh, that they sell. I'm sure you've seen this brand. Um, I've definitely tried some of their stuff. They sell salsa matcha. They sell microwavable rice. Uh, one of the ones I picked up was Mexican uh, brown rice. Again, going back to trying things uh, on the um store shelves looking at different flavors or whatnot and so it's kind of full circle because i found this uh this article by the u.s chamber of commerce uh you go to uschamber.com to find it link will be in the description the title is how companies are monetizing consumer demand for street food from around the world cpg brands and founder-led startups are packaging grocery items inspired by authentic global dishes previously available only from local street vendors food trucks and restaurants and what I some of the takeaways or why it matters to them again this is from the US Chamber of uh, com is 49% of US consumers say they are interested in global street foods ready to eat foods prepared and or sold by vendors in public places such as streets markets and parks according to research form data essential the prevalence of the term street on US restaurant menus has doubled in the past 10 years the research firm found and consumers are increasingly able to taste these foods at home thanks to products from CPG giants such as Kraft Heinz Kellogg's and PepsiCo, as well as founder-led startups like Mila, an Asian-owned food business led by married entrepreneurs, and Somos Foods, launched by three friends from Mexico. And in this article, they go in-depth talking to the the, uh, CEOs and uh, leadership in both these companies um, and just kind of going over the idea of the American palate, especially 
being more open um, and being more willing to try different foods and actually there being a craving of street food around uh, the U.S. Uh, the Data Central, they uh, did a report and it shared that uh, the term street has more than doubled in the last 10 years of menus and appears now on 9.3 of restaurant menus. And they are predicting by 2026, this will reach an 11.2% menu, pen menu penetration. And so, especially over the last five to seven years, uh, according to the Institute of Food Technologists uh, and their Food Technology ma magazine, that uh, street food has gained incredible popularity over the past five to seven years, and there's no signs of it slowing down. So giving you all this information, giving you this data that I wanted to see before going into the story is the really big growth of CPG products highlighting street foods. Uh Kraft Heinz last year relaunching their Deli Max line of frozen foods, uh, which is described as fresh and authentic Mexican street food. Obviously, it's frozen, so I mean, how fresh is it? <laughs> but you get the point. So I'm launching a Mexican street corn white, white rice. And then um, Mila here with uh, chili crisp and uh, you know ready-to-eat soup dumplings and whatnot. So a lot of different cool options. And I wanted to go a little bit more into this, into into two different realms. First off being these, this is what I'm talking about. The packaged goods space, going down your grocery store aisles, trying new foods, seeing what's out there, seeing what is being uh, accepted or being bought by the general consumer is highly valuable. I think when we look at culinary creativity, especially in restaurants, we look at cookbooks, we look at what's trending in the area, we look at the local cuisine we have, we look at chefs that are trending in uh, the food scene. And I think it's very important that when you're ideating on food, that you don't limit yourself to what the 1% eats. And what do I mean by that? I think a lot of people in the food industry look to World's 50 Best, Michelin, that type of dining, fine dining more so, to see what people want to eat. And that is a good resource to go to, especially for creativity, especially for the upper echelon of food and technique. But I really think a lot of cooks and a lot of chefs fail at balancing it out with what the general consumer wants. You know, it's the age-old battle of what a chef wants to cook uh, compared against what a diner is willing to eat or try or what they're willing to pay for or what they want to pay for. And so when you're going about your, you know, working on recipes and restaurants and whatnot, don't just look at fine dining. Look at what is being eaten um, at popular fast food restaurants, at chain restaurants and grocery stores, in local markets and local coffee shops in your area, what the average consumer, you know, one of the best things for me to do is to call my parents and be like, hey, what are you guys interested in? Because they are they are so far behind on what um, they should be trying, what they should be eating, in my humble opinion. Um, but also just calling people, you know, friends that aren't in the food industry, seeing what's interesting them, uh, talking to people, you know, co co-workers and whatnot, or just people in your everyday life that aren't in food. Um, obviously, if you're a co-worker, then they would be in food. Misspoke there, but you know what I'm saying. People that aren't in food, general idea of what they're interested in, what they're hearing about, what's exciting them. That all goes into ideating and making quality food that you can sell and make profit on and you know make really excellent dishes for the customers you're going to be serving. But going back to the street food segment, uh, I find this very fascinating. You know, As um, American palates diversify, as people in general, consumers start to be more open to trying new things, trying new um, bites and different recipes and different um, ab ab abilities, or different ways to showcase food. I think that that is an important trend that a lot of obviously um, 
you know, bigger businesses are picking up on. And I think that's something that we should capture as people in the food world, food industry. I mean, I think there's a very big uh, opening, a very big, I guess, um, there's a very big spot on a menu I think you could put in some restaurants for street food that would be accepted by your diners. Uh, I mean, if you, if PepsiCo here is, is selling Mexican street corn Cheetos, Pringles is selling Mexican street corn crisps, and Mexican street corn inspired guacamole is being made by Sabra, then yes, you could also be selling and um, sharing in this um, idea that consumers and diners are willing to try more. I think a lot of cooks, I would just say, I don't have any data to back this one up, but I think street food excites a lot of cooks because it gets to, you know, you, you look at fine dining restaurants in other countries, that's cool. But what are the locals eating? What are the day-to-day uh, people, community members eating within those communities? And so when you look at items like street food and you look at different items like that, I think there's a no- not a novelty, but a curiosity that hasn't been fully tapped yet by the food world. And I know for myself, and I know as someone who cooks, I find it very fascinating what everyday people eat in other countries. As I've gone along in my culinary career, yes, I respect restaurants that are doing fine dining and stuff and showcasing their cuisine at the highest level, but I'm more so interested in what the general consumer in a different country than from which I live in is eating their food. And I think that sentiment is being shared across diners in the U.S. Now, obviously, a Pringle, you know, Mexican street corn Pringle isn't going to be something that is of value in comparing to um, other, you know, street foods or or food truck um, offerings that you could get out in the real world. But what it is showing you is that consumers are open to it. Consumers are willing to try these new things. And so I think that a lot of chefs want to push and, you know, get people to try new things and cook different and more exciting ingredients. And if we look at the idea that street food, the term street food and food truck culture has been, you know, explosive over the last decade and more. Um, And now street food is becoming really, really popular, not only amongst restaurants, but food packaged goods, you know, CPG goods and whatnot. You take that opportunity and you lean into it. So you could use, you, you can make dishes, other, you know, street food style dishes or inspired dishes from other countries and consumers will be more open to it and be more impacted by it. And so I think this is where a lot of times restaurant people get too linear in their thought. I think they see these bigger brands and they scoff at it or they see like a microwaved Mexican fried rice from Somos and they say, oh, well, that's like, not going to be good quality, but honestly, I did try it. And so I actually really do enjoy some of those foods I would highlight. I would recommend you check them out. But beyond that, the point is this is where consumers are going. This is where their, their tastes are going. This is what the the flavors they want. This is what they're asking for. This is what they're purchasing. You know, these big brands, they make these decisions to make these flavors because they see a advantage. They see an opening and opportunity to make money off of it. Um, and that shows you that diners and the general population is going in certain directions that allows you to cook different foods and more diverse foods and showcase different cuisines and areas. Or you might be from one of these countries and you might know the food scene uh, there, like the back of your hand, and you're able to now show that showcase that to people in the general population. You know, maybe someone you know, goes and gets this, uh, you know, a soup dumpling from a freezer and they heat it up. And, you know, like I guess, I mean, I've tried those, uh, that brand as well. And they're actually pretty tasty for, um, 
you know, pre-made soup dumplings, but then you actually make soup dumplings and you show show them, hey, this is actually what a proper soup dumpling is. And so you expand upon that knowledge. The base knowledge is there from them trying these foods, trying these products, and then you expand on it. So that is my second topic for today. I think it's a very interesting time. I think there is a lot to be gained from looking at uh, large-scale uh, pro- production of these foods. And hopefully uh, you use some of this information to guide how you and cook or you just use it to understand where your consumers and customers are so let me know your thoughts on this story as well i would love to hear and discuss more on it one of the final topics i want to talk on in this solo episode is the idea of the negative perspective of leaving the food industry or the restaurant sector of the food industry and where that's come and where that's kind of been over the last few years Uh, this is a big uh, topic of of importance for me when I started the podcast. I was in the restaurant industry in about two years of doing Line Cook Thoughts. I left the restaurant industry to pursue other work, mainly because of the COVID-19 pandemic, having to find work elsewhere, and then enjoying that work um, thereafter in food manufacturing and whatnot. And I remember going through that time and having just a lot of um, anxiety of leaving the restaurants, anxiety of like pushing out into a new chapter of my career. And so looking back on that and looking back at what, you know, the path I've taken and the way I've gone about, um, you know, working in the food world, it's very interesting to just note how little of a thought that is in my mind anymore, if at any at all. Um, I think that there's so much to offer in the food industry. And I know I've shared this plenty of times on the show, but Looking at uh, around almost three years removed now of of leaving restaurants and going into food, um, other sectors of the food industry, I think it's important to note that there is so much out there for people in the food world and not needing, you know, I don't have a food science degree. I did go to, to culinary school, but um, being able to go into different aspects of the food world that isn't just cooking is really, really interesting to me. I've had a lot of colleagues do that. I've had a lot of people in the food world do that, and I've seen do that. And I think that looking three years from you know from when I was leaving the food industry to now, or when I left the restaurant industry more so, um, it's been very fascinating to me how much I still am you know looking at cookbooks, looking at recipes, being passionate about food, being passionate about what goes on the in the industry. But I've also found the time to forge out time to do the podcast, to do freelance writing, to do food writing, and whatnot. And for me, it's been super, super important as I've talked to people at Line Cook Thoughts to recognize the fact that there's so many different paths, there's so many different opportunities, and there's so many different ways to go about your food career. And I just am really, really interested in the conversation in 2023 of the adversity or the adversity that many still go through when it comes to working in kitchens. And the idea that there's a lot of opportunity for those people to go find work elsewhere if that better suits their skill set, their wants, their ambitions, and what they're interested in and passionate about. And the reason I bring this up on this solo episode, the reason I kind of wanted to end with it, is because I recently had a podcast shared uh, from a listener of the show that talked about um, basically... It was episode 177. They shared why the expectation of suffering is still hurting the food industry. I published this on November 27th of 2022, so almost a year ago, and I still think it's so prevalent. And I've had conversations with people in the, you know, in the industry over the last year, and I think that it's just changed so much now. Where like that expectation of grinding or the the almost badge of honor of grinding isn't what it used to be. 
And so as we go into 2024, as 2023 ends, there's a few things that I look at. I look at first um, regarding this, the, the, I guess, staffing of the industry and kind of where, uh, where things are at. And so I shared this in my last, um, my last newsletter, but restaurants, according to the National Restaurant Association, restaurants surpassed pre-pandemic employment peak in September. And so basically they say more than three years after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S., that resulted in millions of restaurant employees being laid off or furloughed, the size of the industry's workforce finally returned to pre-pandemic levels. Eating and drinking places added a net 60,700 jobs in September on a seasonally, seasonally adjusted basis, according to the preliminary data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And going on to read what the National Restaurant Association shares, that was the strongest increase since January and marked the 33rd consecutive month of employment growth in the restaurant industry. Overall, during the third quarter, eating and drinking places added a net 100,400 jobs. That was up from a modest gain of 36,300 jobs in the second quarter. It also represented the 10th time in the last 11 quarters with restaurant job growth above 100,000. So we look at staffing and we look at the amount of people in the industry and we see that staffing levels are above or back to where they were pre-pandemic. And we look at, a, uh, I don't want to say a fully staffed industry because they're still very, very challenging to, to staff and, you know, the cost of staffing have gone up and the, what we are paying cooks and, you know, what I say is a good thing is going up. And so we look at this and we look at kind of just where we're at in 2023. And I'm very, very interested to see what kind of shakes out in 2024. I think, you know, I just had a conversation I'll be posting next week with Andrew Friedman, um, an author. His book is coming out. So I'm excited for you all to hear it. But we talk about this, um, the, the idea of kind of where kitchens are at now, the kitchen culture entering the early two, you know, 2020s and going into the late 2020s, uh, the positivity that has come from um, change in the industry, how people view food, where people are going with food, uh, expectations of employers, expectations of what your job is, and realizing that like doing your job is what your job should be, and that staying and grinding and doing unpaid work isn't the norm anymore, at least it, it isn't in most cases and definitely shouldn't be. And so as we look at this shifting landscape. I just put this in to the solo episode to say that I really would love to hear from you all. If you could email me at linecookthoughts at outlook.com, if you could Instagram me, DM me um, at linecookthoughts on Instagram, and just share kind of what your thoughts are, where you're, what you're seeing about the kitchen culture in 2023. I'd love to hear if you've moved on from restaurants, where you've gone and what it's been like for you. I also would love to hear if you're still in restaurants, what it's like in 2023. Now, I know it's, you know, from a from an anecdotal, what I've heard standpoint, stressful as hell still, very, very hard, very difficult, especially if you're understaffed. But I've also heard a more realistic expectation from some employers. And this is from a, um, you know, this is just from what I've been told from followers. This obviously can be drastic. I'm sure there's many employers out there that aren't as great in the restaurant community. Um, but I have heard a change or at least a, a, a better expectation, a higher expectation that is coming and demanded from restaurant labor. So, I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear kind of what it's been like in restaurants in 2023 and kind of where the shift has gone. And if you felt the positive effects of a pre-pandemic staffing level across the industry um, come back, has that, and you know how that shakes out, it might not affect your area. Your area still might be um, highly understaffed from pre-pandemic levels. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. But more so, I'm very, very interested. 
you know, this report for me marks that, you know, there's always going to be restaurant drops. I know a lot of people got caught in that trap, myself included, when COVID hit, you know, the, the idea that restaurants always afford work and then a pandemic shuts them all down. So barring any pandemic, there will always be work in restaurants. There will always be work in food. There will always be people needing to work in food. And so my question is, what is it, what does this look like? Uh, with, with the uh, you know mid mark of this decade of the 2020s and going into the latter half of it, how is this going to be? Um, how is how are restaurant workers going to uh, interact, and how are people in the food industry going to work? I've seen a ton of people start out in restaurants, myself included, and go into different avenues and sectors and find different interests. I've seen a lot of people in the food industry, and we talk about this also with Andrew stay in their certain positions, not wanting manage, managing managerial roles, not wanting to have ownerships and businesses, but really just working, enjoying their job, but also finding value in many other things outside of work in their personal lives. So I'm just putting it out there that I, I, I wonder, I wonder what the effects of COVID have been. I wonder what the effects of, um, you know, lower staffing levels were over the last few years and what employers had to do to allure people to come back to the industry. And as we've come up to a time where we're back to um, staffing levels that were comparable to pre-pandemic, how the, sh- how the landscape has changed. I plan to do more content on this. I plan to talk more about this. I would love to kind of just see, as we've hit this benchmark in employment, what your thoughts are, but I want to put it out there for you. Because for me, looking at you know the, the time I've left restaurants or the time I've been away, um, it's life has changed drastically. You know, I thought for sure I would be in restaurants for a very, very long time, and COVID changed that reality reality for me. And I was very blessed in the fact that COVID gave me an opportunity to try a different sector of the food industry because I love what I do now, and I love being able to have time to do line cook thoughts and to do writing and put my time into this. And I'll be honest, when I was doing line cook thoughts for like. The two years I was doing it while managing a restaurant, I had no life. Um, calling family was hard. Um, meeting with a significant other at the time was hard. And this is something I love to do. It's something that I really, really am passionate about. And just to have more time to do, do, to do that has been very impactful on myself um, and have, to have time to focus on stuff like this. So that being said, as we look away, as we look post-pandemic, and obviously COVID is still having its cases, but as we look at, as it relates to restaurants and how staffing has been, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts. What do you see? How are you feeling? Does it feel like we're back to staffing? If you're an operator, if you're a business owner, if you're a chef, does it feel like we're back to pre-pandemic staffing levels? Does it feel at all like there's any more relief? I would love to hear that. And I just wanted to share that story from the National Restaurant Association because I do think it's important to recognize where that is. Like I said, just because the, um, you know, just because the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that we are at pre-pandemic staffing levels doesn't mean it affects your restaurant in the same way. You might feel terribly um, ill-equipped to manage the customer load you have, but it is a benchmark nonetheless, and I think it's important to discuss. So let me know what you think. Let me know how you're feeling, and I would love to just chat with you more on it. Solo episode 207 is in the books. Thank you all for listening. A lot of links to a lot of different articles in the description. So please go do some research if you would like to learn more. Thank you all so much again for the time. 
Uh, I do really enjoy these solo episodes that let me touch on current events, and I really hope you're enjoying this format. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review. And if you are a fan of newsletters, go to lineclickthoughts.com, put in your email, and hit subscribe. I once again want to thank you all for listening to the show, and I will see you on the next Line Click Thoughts podcast.